Welcome to the Coffee House Junkie Podcast. I am your host, Matt Mulder. Sit back, relax, grab your favorite bean beverage. The Coffee Den is now open. Thank you for joining me at the Coffee Den, and welcome to the relaunch of the Coffee House Junkie Audio Podcast. It is good to be back behind the microphone. A lot of things have happened during the long hiatus, and uh, there's much I plan to share with you, but just not in this episode. A couple personal and programming notes before I get into this episode. To put to rest some of the rumors that have circulated around the internet, yes, it is true. The last two years or so, I have fasted from coffee. That's right, not a drop of my favorite bean beverage in more than 24 months. Almost had to rename the audio podcast because of it. But my sister came to the rescue and provided me some beans from Maniac Coffee Roasting in Bellingham, Washington. Uh, specifically the Decaf Espresso Royale blend. Fantastic. If you get a chance, check them out at ManiacCoffeeRoasting.com. Uh, they are the unofficial sponsor of this episode. To uh, officially sponsor an episode, you can send me an email just uh, send it to coffeehousejunkie at gmail.com and please include the word podcast in the subject line. But yeah, give give Maniac Coffee Roasting a try. Um, I definitely recommend the Decaf Espresso Royale blend. Here's what's coming up in this episode. Uh, what do you think of when you see a stack of books? In this show, you will hear what a creative director thinks of when he sees a stack of books. Next, uh, we'll explore who is the audience for your poems. In the final segment, I'll share whether or not it is possible to write in your sleep or not. But first up, a story of how long it takes to write a haiku. It is twilight. A meager meal of potatoes and cheese provides a father and his children sustenance. As they eat, he tells them about a son who lived a long time ago in a far distant land. He was the son of a samurai and is famously known for his poetry, specifically haiku. One child asks when he lived. The father tells the child, that the poet lived in the 1600s. The children recite a history timeline memorized from their studies as a way to place the poet in context of history. One child asks if the poet lived during the time of Lao Tzu. The father answers, Nearly a thousand years separate these men. He goes on to explain that Lao Tzu was Chinese, whereas the poet Matsubasho was Japanese. The word basho roughly translates as banana tree, the father tells his children. They laugh at this and wonder who would want to be named for a banana tree. The banana tree leaves often reminded the poet of a mythical phoenix, the father says, and recites one of basho's famous haiku. On a leafless bough, In the gathering autumn dusk, a solitary crow. 
That's it? one of the children asks. The father recites the poem again. He pauses and points out the kitchen window at the red oak tree in the backyard. It is dusk. It is autumn. But there is no crow. So, it's a poem about this time of day, asks the oldest child. Maybe it is, says the father. There is a long tradition regarding this form of poetry. You see, in that time and place, it was considered rude to speak plainly or directly about a subject matter. Often, the more artful and, and ambiguous the poem, the more skillful you were considered. So, it's not about this time of day, asks the younger child. Maybe the poem is more about the poet who sees himself as a crow entering the twilight of his life. Autumn is a metaphor representing old age, says the father. And maybe the poem is to celebrate a time like now, eating potatoes for supper as the autumn evening approaches. The father and children finish eating their supper quickly. How long do you think it took Basho to write that poem? asks the eldest child. The father leans back from the table to consider the question. I'd say, he says, almost 40 years. What do you think of when you look at a stack of books? Maybe, so many books, so little time. Or, can't wait to get home to read this novel or memoir or biography tonight after supper. Sometimes you think, this looks like a great mystery that so-and-so will enjoy. Or, maybe, I've always wanted to know more about the story behind the mating rituals of eels in the Bermuda Triangle. Okay, I made that last one up. But you see what I'm saying. What do you think of when you see a pile of paperbacks? Most readers, when they look at a stack of books, consider whether or not they want to read the content. As a reader, I look at books in a similar manner, in that I desire a great story to embrace me, or a true word to transform my life. But as a creative director at an international publishing house, and having completed almost 9,000 printed pages in a, the last year, I see books a bit differently. I see the years a writer invests in a manuscript. I see the weeks and months an editor helps strengthen the manuscript to a final draft. I see the numerous possibilities for cover design and format for a printed book, packaging and whatnot. I see the hassle that is the American distribution system for trade paperback books. And yes, I see the luxury of a Friday night, sitting in your car with the windows rolled down on a May evening. You're parked beside the river reading a paperback novel about some guy and some girl in the middle of some war, and the sun slowly sets while every car that passes you carries passengers to the latest movie theater, inspired by one of those paperback thingies, or a television season finale, which is most likely also inspired by a novel. Or stupid animal tricks on YouTube. It would be quite a stretch and maybe even difficult to find serious literature on that subject. But you see what I mean. 
What do you think of when you look at a stack of paperback books? It has been almost a year ago that I submitted more than 50 poems to various publishers. Since that time, I waited patiently for responses to editors of those fine literary publications. I have read blog posts and articles on how to write a pitch letter, or how to revamp your poetry submission cover letter, or how to arrange the poems in your submission. Then there are the articles on how to brand your poetry, or other literary work. Oh, and then there are the articles on the death of poetry, and the death of reading, and even the death of the English major. So far I have not yet read an article on the death of the death of articles, but I'm sure someone is working on that one. There are numerous audio podcasts I've listened to on my mega commute to work. The topics include indie writers succeeding as ebook authors, author tips on publishing, marketing your manuscript and other related topics, and yes, I kept composing poetry verse and prose during that whole period. A splinter of an idea percolates through the consumption of these articles and podcasts. Maybe maybe I'm submitting my work to the wrong audience. What if the editors and their staff are not the audience for these poems? What if these poems I have crafted for years has an audience outside the literary magazine world? And then another splinter of a notion appears. Maybe it's the content of the poems, not the quality that hasn't found the right audience with editors. And soon a cloud of a thousand splinters, like a hailstorm of arrows, descends with maybe this and maybe that, and my cerebral cortex shudders from the impact. Two thoughts remain. First, Al McGinnis once told me, after his book reading at Malaprops, that his first poem was published upon first submission. But it was years before he ever published again. So... Maybe I have many more months and years to go before my poems find the right audience. The second thought. If I had an audience of only one, that is sufficient. Realizing late in the evening that the day had almost passed and I had not committed to composing a poem... I set to the task. I do not remember falling asleep nor placing the handmade notebook on the windowsill. I only recall the sound of rain falling through the gutter outside the window. The next morning, in the notebook, I saw these few written lines. It seems so simple for a raindrop to climb down a glass window. It is nearer a haiku in form, or maybe tonka, but I have no idea where I intended to take the poem. Maybe I do not need to take it anywhere. Maybe it shall remain a fragment of a time between times.
Hope you enjoyed this episode. This show is produced by your host and coffeehouse junkie, me, Matt Mulder. Special thanks to Amy Annell for the music between the segments. Many, many years ago, the album A School of Secret Dangers was uh, my first introduction to her work. Really great album, and very grateful that she gave permission to use her song, We'll Try, on this episode. If you like that song, check out her latest album, The Cimarron Banks. Visit her website, highplainsside.com, or you can um, purchase any of her albums. They are all available at Apple iTunes. Um, You can check out, uh, I think there's seven albums available. Also, thanks to this episode's unofficial sponsor, Maniac Coffee Roasting. If you've been on a two-year fast from coffee, you're going to want to check out their great selection. Uh, Visit ManiacCoffeeRoasting.com. Thanks again, and join me next time at the Coffee Den. Hey, look at you, my dear. From out here, things look clear. You turned around to talk to someone. Found nobody there. So you walked.